As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week, we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential through the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge, inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a Story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Well, hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Uncorking a Story. I'm Mike Carlin, and I'm so happy to have you with me as I uncork another great story. I want to remind you to please follow Uncorking a Story in all social medias, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok. You can find us at Uncorking a Story on all of those platforms. Now, if you only listen to Uncorking a Story as an audio podcast, we encourage you to please watch us on YouTube, which is a great way to leave feedback for each episode and listen to it ad-free. So I encourage you to please subscribe to our YouTube channel by going to YouTube, searching for Uncorking a Story and hitting subscribe. For you audio listeners out there, please subscribe, rate, and review Uncorking a Story wherever you get your podcast. Now, today on the show, we have Dr. Vilma Luz-Caban, who has written a memoir entitled The Heart of an Advocate, and she's got a really really fascinating and powerful story to share with you all. But one thing really struck me about this conversation, which is uh, Dr. Caban's admission 
that her decision to travel to some faraway places, including Kenya and Egypt, was partly driven by her subconscious desire to run away from unresolved trauma from her childhood. Now, that was something that she realized after turning to creative nonfiction as a creative outlet. And as she put her story down on paper, Dr. Kaban was able to start a healing process, which is now driving her to help others find the courage to capture their stories. And even, um, you know, she's starting a publishing company to help them, you know, share the stories that they've been capturing. So this goes back to something that I've been talking a lot about lately, which is the transformative power of writing. You know, of course, we hope that our readers are moved by the stories that we share. But what about us? You know, writing is a very introspective process and is something that can change something within us in addition to all those great things it does for our readers. You know, it's no secret why therapists recommend journaling exercises during treatment and why journals are great fodder for memoirs. So, you know, while writing can be a very simple act, I am keenly aware of the challenges um, and how challenging it may be to experience and re-experience past events. You know, it could take a tremendous amount of courage to call up past memories and then put those memories down on paper. And then, of course, there's the prospect of sharing those memories with the world. And, and that can be daunting, you know, to, to put it mild, mildly. But also remember that doing all of that can lead to a healing process inside you. And sharing your experiences with other people, you know, while, while that takes a tremendous amount of vulnerability, can also help other people. And that's a good thing. You know, we writers have to get comfortable with being vulnerable. So please don't let uh, fear around vulnerability stop you. So now in the immortal words of Ace Ventura, all righty then, enough pontificating for me. It's time to uncork Dr. Vilma Luz Caban's story. Dr. Vilma Luz Caban is a dedicated educator with over 30 years experience in Westchester County, New York. She serves as an executive board member for the One Circle Foundation, and her personal passion lies in addressing social and economic inequities. She joins me today on Uncorking a Story to discuss her career and her memoir, The Heart of an Advocate. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Vilma. Hello, Mike. How are you? Thanks for having me here today and creating some space for the heart of this advocate. Um, I am grateful to be here with you today. Well, I'm excited to have you here and to chat with you. And, and I'm going to ask you the question I ask all of my guests, which is, where does your story as an author begin? Wow. Um, I could say as young as being that little girl who always loved to read uh, to that being that young person who wanted to be a teacher to end up getting away from a space that was volatile. I grew up in a home. Riddled with domestic violence and then just going to college to get away, becoming a teacher and having it so far heavy on my heart to come back. And I became a New York City teacher for a, a short stint, but it was not safe. And so then I found a space in my home in Westchester County, and it's been my home for the almost 31 years. So I, I would say my story starts now at the end of my career as I am um, less than five months away. And what does this Gen um, X teacher, woman, Latina do at this stage when the thought of retirement terrifies uh, some people, especially in my profession? So uh, I'm curious, what drew you to teaching as a profession initially? I would say that um, my, my, my desire to 
always learn more beyond the borders of my very small uh, sheltered space. I would dive into encyclopedias in the library. I would hide out uh, in the corner. I was trying to see if I can convince the librarian to let me take home this reference book that you're not allowed to take home. And I and I and the, I think that's how I became a teacher because I was quite convincing, trying to you know it was probably that or I was going to go into marketing to try to convince her that this was a good idea. And um, on some occasions, she was always very gracious and would let me. Um, just, you know, I would have to treat it like a treasure. And I always did. So in, in you know, was reading an escape for you somehow? Yes, it was an escape. It was, I remember not really having a space to read and um, being creative about that. Um, we lived in a one bedroom apartment uh, with four children and there was really no room for just us to read. And so I remember convincing my mother that if I can just borrow the small lamp and a couple of cushions from the sofa, I would move the clothes over in the closet so I can read and just bring out an extension cord. So I was reading inside our closet. No. So yes, reading was my escape. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, The Heart of an Advocate and the story and backstory um, to your memoir. I would say that um, because of the nature of, of teaching, it is a place where you're always pursuing advanced degrees, always refining your craft and delving into a richer, you know, pedagogy and, and in your professor is, is really about extending and broadening your craft to reach the student. And so... Um, it started with educational research where I was pursuing at the time my master's and feeling like there were not enough young children of color who were advancing in the area of mathematics and diving into advanced studies of science. And it really concerns me. And so I decided to pursue my master's in math leadership and uh, Bank Street College, a very progressive college in New York City. And that's where it kind of started for me. I started to see this theme of social justice in learning for um, really breaking away what seemed to be gates uh, set up just because of tracked learning and, you know, leveled learning that it just kind of kept children on a track away from excellence. So I would say that's how it started. And then I pursued my doctorate because I, I felt that I was in a leadership position in, in the district I was teaching and that, you know, was very limited. And I felt that I wanted to make more of a, a, a broader uh, impact. And so that's when I decided to pursue it with the intention to perhaps teach at the co different colleges and try to activate some social justice around this idea of math. I see it as uh, math, you know, equity. I see it as uh, it's a form of, of uh, justice to be able to, you know, open a way uh, open pathways to advance learning in mathematics, because if not, you're stealing off the citizenry um, access to future careers for our citizens. And so it was important to me. And so after that, I was approached by someone who was doing research in Kenya to join her. They needed an educational um, researcher because uh, they needed to do a program evaluation on an educational program that was centered around girls fleeing Kenya, I mean, uh, fleeing child, becoming child brides 
Um, and um, they were a part of an indigenous tribe. And so they were doing research with the United Nations to find ways to, to kind of create good practice in supporting these girls and the goal of uh, replicating those models for other uh, agencies and nonprofits and um, international organizations supporting uh, girls like this. And so that's when it really opened up. And I was, I was in geek land. I was so happy doing my educational research and, and really just churning out those program evals. And um, it just felt like a great space. But, you know, I was running away from myself. I was running away from my trauma and all the things that activated this desire to want to create change. And that was this notion around women and children really was about touching um, the heart of this little girl who never really addressed a lot of the issues about why I wanted to flee and why I wanted to make a difference. And I started doing a little bit of creative nonfiction writing about some of my experiences as a young woman. Um, as a part of the Bronx Memoir Project in New York City, I had moved to New York City for love and I was trying this and I, and I was trying to break away the geek them, you know, like I don't want to be a geek, but, um, but I realized it was that that was me and, um, I wanted to really activate my voice as a writer, as a creative writer. And so that's how it started. And I then had a broken heart and started to crack open this, this hurt and this pain, diving into poetry and having fun with it, performing for the New York and Poets Cafe and other open mics in New York City and feeling like, wow, I, I think I've, I've really found my voice. And then deciding um, at the behest of a few beautiful people in my life that said, Vilma, you should share your story. And I just didn't know where to begin. But I decided to make a huge investment in myself and I hired a developmental editor because I didn't want to waste my time. That's the researcher in me. And we created and framed the arc of the story. And it took me almost five years to finish writing it. Yeah, I, I imagine with with a story like yours, you know, rooted in, you know, rooted in pain and rooted in trauma. And, and so much of that sounds like it was repressed, you know, repressed yeah. trauma. Um, you know, you've got these elements in your life where you are sort of, yeah, and to use your terms, kind of running away from it. And I, I was thinking when you were telling me about this opportunity to go to Kenya, I'm thinking that's a that's a really long way from New York, where where the needs that you've identified in in inequities um, in minority populations are are great and, and a lot closer to home. So, you know, part of me was thinking, my gosh, why? Why go all the way to Kenya for this? But in, in a way, it makes sense if, if you're trying to sort of run away from some of the things that were, you know, then that necessarily happening in your life at the time, but had happened to you in your life. You know, I, I'm curious if we could just, you know, re revisit Kenya for a moment. What did you learn about yourself during that part of your life when you were, when you were that far away? What I learned was, I, I will say that seeing these girls seeking refuge um, and the, really the director of that program was a Maasai herself who was a teacher. I identified strongly with the woman who was creating this program to support these girls. It also made me look at these little girls and, and how stoic they were and how they shared their story. And I remember um, having, um, you know, a translator and 
and having the translator. And she was like, are you understanding what I'm saying? And I was saying, yes, I understand. And I was writing notes and really suspending any kind of reaction because I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to keep these girls feeling like they can share their story. And the minute we flinch, we, the minute we kind of create this, oh no, um, you know, it, it just clams them up. And she just thought, wow, how do you do that? And that's when it came back. Wow. How did I do that? And I mean, I, it, it wasn't as physically graphic as these poor girls, but what I did was I learned how to compartmentalize and I, I reached for excellence as my way to try to kind of pull myself out of that. But, and that's how it kind of brought me back little by little. Um, being in the shadows of the pyramids, I did some work and was able to present as an educational consultant. And I was able to, you know, meet with other dignitaries and delegates from the country, from not only the country, but across, you know, around the world. And standing in the shadow of the parents saying, what is this young Bronx girl doing here? I've always identified strongly as a New York City girl. And I realized that I was running away. I really was running away. And so uh, I'm glad that um, something, you know, it, it just activated uh, a voice for me to take a closer look at what compelled me to continue to do this work. And so that's where I am now, just trying to you know, I think we all are an advocate at some stage in our life. And I, I believe that that's what my memoir really speaks to, really highlighting how it just looks different for different people. And, you know, just finding that space where you feel that you can be, you know, be of service and, and help a community. You know, I, I do want to dig into the, the writing process for your memoir and, um, and all that. But before I do, I'm just, I'm just I'm picturing you in Kenya. Um, with these, you know, little girls, um, different language, different culture, different backgrounds, but but it seems like you had a, a shared experience, and maybe that's like us understanding, or you, or you know, the universe telling us, hey, we're all human beings here. We are really all part of the same global family, and we all have these, you know, whether we look different, we sound different, we don't necessarily understand each other's native tongues. But we can understand the experiences that other people have gone through. Did you feel a sense of empathy? Were you connecting on, a, on an empathetic level with these children? I have such great memories. One of them, two of them, really. But the first one being, they would look at me and, um, and, and like they had seen me before. And I, one of the little girls dragged me to like a bulletin board by the main office where they were staying. And she pointed to a picture of Rosario Dawson. And, you know, and she, her little fingers just like gazed upon my lips and she was trying to make sense. Who is this fair woman who, who has such, you know, broad features, but doesn't speak my language, but is so, is here for me. And so I was, that was a memory that I'll never forget. Um, at the time, there were a lot of actors who were supporting the work of like the vagina monologues to try to bring awareness to this issue. So it was becoming a place where many celebrities were swinging by. And so she was probably trying to figure out what was my role in all of this. Um, and another memory was I brought some earrings for the girls. Now, traditionally, the girls, you know, they, they loved my hair. They loved touching my hair and just, you know, and, and stroking it and talking to me and swinging. And I'm going, Okay. <laughs> you know, I don't know what they're saying, but they're saying love. So I received it. 
but I brought them some earrings and man, they were so excited, so happy. And I told them through the translator, the story of a pearl and how um, one of the last gifts I gave my mother, you know, was a, a pearl. And, and because it's the symbolism of the pearl in it's a clam. And I showed him a picture of a clam and I said, a clam, you know, gets a little granule, a little, a little grain of, of, of sand inside and creates an irritation and it's so uncomfortable. But it's amazing how it starts to wrap around this hurt and it becomes like a healing coating. And then out of that hurt is this beautiful released pearl. And then I, I just said, you know, you've gone through a lot of hurt. I said, but you are your you are your tribe's pearls. You will be able to go and go to school because that, that was the goal to try to get them to school, to finish school so that they weren't getting married at 10. And I said, and I can't wait to see what these beautiful pearls will bring to the, to the world. And they were just so happy. And I was thrilled. And I felt that regardless of the language barrier, our hearts connected. You mentioned um, in that that beautiful analogy of a pearl and and the healing uh, coating. Um, It sounds like writing in in many ways for you was a healing coating. And I'm curious if you could reflect on that a little bit as as you think about sort of the motivation to to write your memoir, The Heart of an Advocate. I was inspired by our our, uh, boomer. Uh, Esmeralda Santiago. She is one of the first Latina Puerto Rican authors that I was ever aware of. She wrote the book when I was Puerto Rican. And it's a story of her coming, immigrating from Puerto Rico to New York City and going through all those changes and culture shock and the dissonance that it creates. And um, I was so inspired by, by her story. But as much as I immediately identified with her story, I felt that there wasn't a story for me, the first generation Latina Puerto Rican in New York City trying to break free. And so I felt it was important to, to kind of speak to that. You know, I'm, I feel fortunate that now my contemporaries, there are several Latina authors out there, um, great authors like my, my mentor, Dr. Melissa Cosaquino, who works um, who's an English um, professor who works with the next generation of creative writers and in New York City and has asked me to join her um, and share my craft to uh, a Gen um, X, uh, a millennial, Elizabeth Velasquez, who has written the, the novel. It's a juvenile novel called When We Make It, a Puerto Rican novel, a New Rican novel. And I wish I would have had those examples, you know, like Dr. Cosaquino wrote the story Carmen and Grace. It's a story of two girls, you know, trying to get through life's, you know, challenges and traps, um, break, you know, growing up in, in so, such dysfunction, but they make it through with their grit. And I didn't have that. And so I wish that I would have had that. I think I would have activated my voice as a writer sooner. And, and I believe that that's what this work is about now for me, being able to, as I come to a place to retire, I've really come close to coming back to my roots. I had attended a wonderful event, uh, Latina Luminaries at Lincoln Center, where I got to see Sandra Guzman, the editor of the, um, the Daughters of Latin America. And she brought this beautiful anthology together of all these great women from all over the world, from Latin America to write about their, their story. 
and um, Elizabeth being one of them and Esmeralda being also one of them. And I felt like, wow, so inspired. And they had an altar at, um, at the event. And I had brought a picture of my mother and I had the time I brought the proof of my book. It was just about to be launched. And I just left it at the altar. And a couple of months earlier, I was in Puerto Rico because I'm getting ready for this transition. And I brought my book and I stood on the land where my mother's mother and my mother's father at the time before were sharecroppers for sugar plantations. And they were finally able to purchase their land in the late 1950s. And I decided to dedicate my book to my ancestors and then come to this event and dedicate another space to my ancestors and be ready to now go back and toil just like my ancestors, but on, on another level um, to try to create voice and to create space. And that each journey for me is the publishing house is going to be called La Casa de Maria. It was a house my mother was trying to build in secret as a refuge as she was trying to get away from my stepfather. So never got to see that vision happen. But now her daughter is going in her stead. So I will be there, ready, creating this publishing house from scratch because it never was finished. So I have now added general contractor to my list of things that, you know, teachers are, have, have many gifts, but this will be interesting. And I've been, you know, really kind of polishing. I'm about to take a, a little couple of little home decor courses and try to figure out some tiling, try to save some money doing it myself. Not, not, not to mess it up too bad, but so, you know, now I'm, I'm at this place and I am rematriating. I am going back to my mother's motherland to be able to do this work. So do you plan on living there full time or are you going to split your time between New York and? I, I am leaning really hard on living there full time. But I will tell you, I have some reservation because of the infrastructure of Puerto Rico in terms of health insurance. I live a re very healthy life. I work hard at trying to honor my body, my temple. But I know that, you know, aging comes with a certain setback. So I am still, you know, my intention is to rematriate, to be there full time. But I am also open to, you know, if the publishing house expands and we have satellite locations to try to bring folks from New York to Puerto Rico, I'm open to to having kind of like a bit of a, you know, transatlantic um, experience. Well, it sounds uh, it sounds like another adventure. Did you, you no longer feel like you're running away from something and, and now you're running towards something? I feel like I'm running towards something and I love the way you frame that. I believe that I want to create a space where I'm bridging. I want to see myself as a bridge. And um, many times, you know, like, for example, I, you know, I had a friend who's, you know, who was saying, what are you going to do? Like, how do you, how do you tie, how do you not alienate, you know, marginalized writers because it's only in Puerto Rico? And I go, no, I, I totally understand that this is a space for anyone who is nostalgic and wants to, you know, go back to that. It's also a space for anyone who wants to feel like Puerto Rico is part of the United States. It's, it's our, it's our gem. It's our pearl. And so I want to be able to create a bridge and say, come, come to the island, experience this. And, um, you know, and I believe that there's a space for that. I reached out to the National Puerto Rican Museum in Chicago and 
was very excited to hear back that they are, you know, exploring ways that they could incorporate the heart of an advocate in their educational programs. And, you know, wouldn't that be wonderful if out of that experience of being in the National Puerto Rican Museum, that you would then have an opportunity to come to La Casa de Maria and go through that writing retreat experience and publish. I mean, and you don't have to be Puerto Rican or Puerto Rican to be there. You can just be someone who has the the heart that seeks the rhythm of a people that that are storytellers. Um, our Taino indigenous people were storytellers. And I feel like I am cracking wide open that genetic code um, that says speak. And I hope that I can get writers to feel comfortable with their voice and share their stories to be able to capture it and crystallize it in book form. When do you uh, anticipate starting to take some submissions? I'm seeking January 2025. I'm giving myself, um, when I retire, I'm giving myself a couple of weeks. And then I'm trying to get get past hurricane season, you know, before hurricanes come and get busy. And then, you know, try to, to really, that's why I said GC is going to be my new name right now, because I, I'm going to try to get some work done. Very <laughs> Well, uh, where can people pick up The Heart of an Advocate? Well, you can find it on Amazon. Right now, I'm trying to get a great circle of reviewers to try to support me so I can make a pitch at Barnes & Noble. And I'm trying to reach out to other local public libraries, not only in New York City, but in at my hometown in Milford at the time, and also reaching out in Westchester County, a couple of, of libraries. But definitely you can go to Amazon. You can go to my publisher, Green Heart uh, Press, Living Press, as well as um, going to my website, www.vilmaluzgabang.com. There you go. We'll put all of those links on our show notes for people to uh, just have a one tap to to buy the book and and visit your website. And Vilma, um, I always like to end with a um, sort of a deep question, which is um, if you could go back in time and and whisper some words of advice into your younger self's ear. You know, maybe it was that little girl who was begging the librarian to take the reference book home. Um, what uh, what would you tell your younger self? Mm, I love this question. I would say that it is okay to speak because on the occasions that I did speak, I got into a lot of trouble for creating a rocket and saying I should have stayed quiet. And um, I am giving you, you know, you did the right thing speaking and um, you are giving yourself permission to model um, how to be brave and courageous. And those brave and courageous circles just create more brave and courageous circles. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Vilma Luz-Caban, thank you so much for stopping by and corking a story and letting me uncork yours. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.
You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Danielle Wiley hosts a great podcast called The Art of Sway. Danielle, tell us what you talk about on the show. The Art of Sway brings listeners inside the world of marketing as seen through the lens of influence. So each week I chat with an expert guest for a lively discussion about connecting ideas with audiences in an attempt to uncover all the ways influence impacts how and what we discover, purchase, and recommend to each other. Wow. And where can people subscribe? Go to theartofswaypodcast.com, find the show at marketingpodcasts.net, or search for The Art of Sway wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe.